0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets, here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note I am a registered representative Foreside Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views are guests are their own and not those of trade Affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show. We actually are live back on Wharton's campus today, and I have a guest in the studio. This is a First for the post-COVID world, so Scott Crowe from Center Square, welcome to Wharton, welcome to Behind the Markets.
1: Hey, Jeremy, great to be here for the uh, post-COVID kickoff.
0: This is going to be a great discussion with Scott for the full show, um, but we have Professor Siegel dialing from around the world. We've got Professor Siegel in Amsterdam. Professor, some interesting things happening in the markets. Great to get your take quickly from, from Europe. What is, uh, what's your take,
2: well, I'm I'm watching I'm watching developments here and and around the world. Um uh actually I was surprised to see the gasoline prices here. They said it's up but not as much and that's one reason is they have they have such a high tax on it that the oil uh, cost uh is a, is a smaller fraction. So when oil goes up uh, the percentage increase in in the gasoline prices is 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 uh less. The Dutch seem to have uh, a lot of uh i mean i'm 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 on the canals a lot of uh wind uh and uh, uh wind power uh natural gas they don't uh, they don't need it from russia so they're do- they they're doing very very well um in contrast to the us <laughs> this uh, as i'm looking at at the screens right now um i mean we all see what's happening amazon's down over 12 and a half% right now Apple, which recorded a good quarter, but warned of supply side difficulties, what's going on in China. You know, even though it, it had a great quarter, it, it certainly I mean, it's down 1.4 percent right now after opening up uh, uh, in the morning. So uh, pressure is, is coming down. Uh, I think the the big news certainly is a shocking GDP. Now, actually the service that i follow said it was going to be minus point six percent i don't know why the street was up one percent but the big reason for the downward uh shock on gdp is uh in my way an, an incredible downward movement in our trade balance 125 uh, 125 billion dollar deficit I, that's a very volatile number and could be revised dramatically later on. This is a preliminary number. They need a preliminary number, and they stuck it in. That's the reason for the downward. Otherwise, we'd be near zero, which was pretty much what I was guessing for the first quarter. Uh, don't forget, first quarter is backward-looking. We're already uh, you know, at the very end of the first month of second quarter. And the second quarter is looking at plus 2% right now. So it's not going to be the, you know, the, the informal definition or recession two consecutive GDP reports, but it has political impact. The negative GDP report got splashed on the headlines. And clearly, next week, we have a Fed meeting. And I bet you that many questions are going to be posed by uh, the journalists. Uh, you know, how can you be raising rates so uh, aggressively when we had a negative a GDP? And are we on the verge of a recession? And he's going to be trying to answer that probably somewhat similar to why I say it could be revised and won't be down. We're positive now. Consumption was strong, but certainly that's it's going to put him on on the spot there. What they're going to do seems baked uh, in 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 the cake right now. It's going to be a 50 basis point hike. Uh, I I I don't uh, they may mention the downward in the statement. They may mention in the, uh, the, something about the downward movement in GDP, but it's going to be sloughed off. It won't cause caution. I expect Bullard, despite this, to be a descent, uh, for 75 basis points, um, and not for 50. I'm not sure whether there'll be other descents, but the questions will be around that low GDP report and whether we can uh, continue to, to hike. The tone will be hawkish, though. Um, I mean, we already mentioned last week that, the, that Powell has stated that he wants to get to neutral uh, as fast as possible. Um, uh, and, and clearly, I think, uh, um, uh, I, I, I think he will. I mean, we saw the employment cost index, the quarter we won. It was higher than expected. Now, that's a labor cost in, index. So we've talked about labor lagging. Uh, because of people fixed in the contracts, it's also backward looking. It's also a quarter ago. so i mean it's not it's not a forward looking. Let's give the good news. The good news is we did get the money supply for March, and for the second consecutive month, the money supply growth moderated dramatically. We've had a uh, the last two months annualized money supply m two growth has been four and a half percent that is a a 2% uh, uh, inflation number, or even slightly less. Now, let's not get that excited. We're still up 10% year over year, and this is only a uh, two-month slowdown. But it is the first two-month slowdown since COVID hit, um, which gave us that dramatic burst in the money supply. We should also mention, and I just did these calculations um, M2 is approximately 25% above trend, above that 2% trend, uh, while inflation is only 6 or 7% above it. So there's still a lot of inflation in the pipeline because of the money supply growth that we had over the last two years. Nonetheless, we gotta start somewhere and, uh, there is that encouraging news on the money supply front, uh, run and these higher interest rates and, uh, uh, reduction of balance sheets should, uh, uh, hopefully continue, uh, the moderate money supply increase. Again, it's a lag. We're not going to see it much in the, much, the next six or 12 months. Um, but, uh, it eventually, uh, will slow down the inflation.
0: Professor, you're hearing a lot more about this recession. Are we going to get uh, – is the Fed going to hide too much and tip us into recession? As, as you look through the strength of the underlying economy, sort of the at, – at peak employment, you could say, uh, where do you see the recession coming uh, and when?
2: Well, again, there is a danger. Uh, again, I mean, look at they reacted so slow to data that I thought was inflationary. They're going to probably, you know, they could overreact. That's you know the normal human reaction is, oh my God, I underreacted, and I better do it, you know, now. And they they could, they could overreact. But I think you've got to get the at least that interest rate up to the neutral rate to per, to keep that uh, money supply growth at a moderate rate. But again, not just interest rates. It's also liquidity growth. We've got to look at the, you know, the stance of the budget, the liquidity growth that's uh, in the economy, loans by banks. I mean, these are are the basics of monetary theory that, you know, uh, seem to have been totally ignored by the Federal Reserve over the last six or 12 months. I do not see a recession, as I mentioned last week, in the next, um, well, we have now uh, eight more months in this year, uh, uh, early prediction: Look at look at uh, jobless claims are extremely strong. We are going to get that employment report at the end of next week. Uh, early debt is 400,000. That's certainly not uh, recessionary. Uh, uh, again, I, I, you know, uh, yes, we got a we got a negative number uh, on this one because of that that sharp rise in oil prices dipping into real uh, GDP. Uh, I mean that was a partial supply price. but again. The the, the 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 newer dynamics show that growth is continuing at a moderate pace. I mean, psychology and anything else can bring you anywhere. A bear market, which I don't think is going to happen. Um, uh, but you know, there's a lot of reasons for swings in a lot of directions. Um, I, I think is is uh, uh, you know could add to negative sentiment. We have a bear market in Nasdaq. I don't think we're going to get there in the S&P, but we may. If it is, it's going to be a mild one of the 20%. And by the way, I still think earnings are going to be really good this year. And one thing, let me let me end with this, because I think that too often we, we, we fail to realize. Everyone, a, a recession, so if we have a recession, a recession is one year of earnings that might drop 20%. You think about stocks as the longest-term asset, present discounted cash flow out to infinity. One year of 20% followed by growth afterwards uh, should not cause a major drop in stock prices. I know history has shown it does, and then everyone that sells in a recession always regrets that they do. Take a look at the long view. It's the same long view that I presented when I talked about COVID in March of 2020. The market was falling back, and I said, listen, we might have one year of terrible earnings, maybe a year and a half, but that should not cause a 35% reduction in the S&P, which is what we had. And certainly those that, uh, that listened and reasoned the long-term value of equities uh, stayed with stocks. And I'm certainly – they're certainly glad that they did.
0: Well, Professor, we're going to let you get back to Europe. Thanks for joining us for some comedy to start the show.
2: Thank you very much, Jeremy.
0: Have a great weekend there. We uh, have Scott Crowe, the chief investment officer at Center Square Investment Management, a Philadelphia-based real estate firm. I've gotten to know Scott. Actually, you're sort of first guest live in the studio. You're also my first uh, in-person dinner when, when COVID started opening up back in the suburbs here. That's right. Tell our listeners, I'll get your views on the, the markets, the economy, all the things Professor Siegel just talked about. But let's give people introduction to your background in Center Square. So tell us a little bit about, your, about yourself.
1: Yeah, great. So uh, thanks for having me, Jeremy. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's great to be back out in the world and and, and doing things in person. I, I just think that uh, it's, it feels just so much more human. Yeah. Um, So Center Square, uh, $15 billion AUM real estate-focused investment manager, as you mentioned, based here in Philadelphia, but with offices in uh, New York, Los Angeles, London, and Singapore. Uh, We began life in 1987 as a small real estate uh, uh, value-add investment manager and, and, and have now grown to... Have a number of different businesses all focused in the real estate space, so uh, one of our businesses is investing in real estate investment trusts on behalf of pension funds, corporate and public endowments uh, and also we subadvise a number of mutual funds. Uh, we are in fact the, the fourth largest uh, investor in real estate investment trusts uh, on an active basis so oh, wow. we actively manage um, uh, actively manage those portfolios and the job there is to pick the stocks that go up the most, and we, you know, we, we call that alpha. So alpha is our is our product that that is our, our and the skills that we apply uh, to create that come from a, a great group of people that we have on board, uh, you know, who have a lot of experience and um, we spend a lot of time doing a lot of thorough research um, and, and a lot of hard work. the um, The other part of our business is private real estate, so we have a private real estate equity platform that. It involves or incorporates a series of value add funds so for those who are not less familiar with some of these terms value add means buy it fix it sell it so typically we're buying a uh a you know an apartment garden style apartment in a market like uh atlanta for instance and uh it hasn't been fixed up for 10-15 years and we're coming up, we're coming in and doing kitchens bars common areas basically bringing that up to standard and then being able to you know grow rents as a back of on the back of that upgrade so that's an example of something we would do in our value add strategy we also have a service property strategy um, it's uh, we try to avoid the word retail uh, in that name but it, it really it houses the services that we consume um, uh, and would include fast casual dining so think of a Starbucks, uh, Chipotle, it'll include business services, at and FedEx, it'll include your Aspen Dental, your Orange Theory, if you're familiar with that fitness concept. Yeah. All of the things that are A, Amazon-proof, and B, actually, we're consuming more of uh, yeah. and came back with a bang after COVID. Um, the, the third part of our business is real estate credit. We lend against buildings. We lend to people that own assets. Uh, we're a mezzanine uh, debt specialist. Uh, and, and the last part or the, th- the fourth part of our business is something we call strategic capital, which is something that was birthed during COVID um, based on the fact that the capital market shut, shut down. And we were able to step in in a few instances and make some investments in, in companies that were unlisted but are on the path to IPO. Uh, and it really is the intersection of private equity. And real estate. Uh, an example would be Lineage Logistics, the largest cold storage owner and operator in the world. Uh, you know, We facilitated uh, some growth capital for them to continue to, to, to execute their business plan. And another example would be IQHQ, which is the largest uh, life science uh, development platform in the world. So for some very interesting stories there. Let's tell your story. How did you come to Center Square
0: and, and uh, get involved with them?
1: Yeah, so uh you may be able to tell that um you know I'm not a am nat- not native to America. Uh really? <laughs> <laughs> I um I began I began my career in Sydney, Australia as a, a real estate investment banker. Uh they moved me around the world uh and, and I ended up in New York. Um spent some time as a you know global REIT portfolio manager at one of our competitors. Uh and you know, I'd known the folks at Center Square for many, many years. They were my clients way back when I was an investment banker. And, um, uh, you know, joined, joined the business because I could see a lot of exciting potential and opportunity, uh, part of which was driven by the fact that we were underway in terms of, you know, buying our business back from the Bank of New York Mellon. So we were housed within a, you know, a large financial firm. And the ability to be an owner in your business, be able to, you know, craft your destiny react to markets in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, a real time fashion, um, you know, and help, help grow and create, uh, it was really exciting for me when, when we joined, you know, we, we had $8 billion today. We're closer to 16. Wow. Uh, that's just over the last like six, seven years. And so, and, and helping grow out a lot of those verticals that they're, they're things we've really just been able to do since we, um, uh, since we you know, became an independently owned firm.
0: The entrepreneurial culture is very different at a at a cell phone firm than as a big organization. I could understand how that how that works.
1: Yeah, but sometimes it's like walking a tightrope without a net underneath you too. You know what I mean? It, it cuts both ways. It make, every day every day's interesting.
0: That's awesome. Um, so we should we should talk about how um, you know that I mentioned we got together for dinner during COVID, and that was the birth of a formal relationship between our firms. So we're now working together on a real estate ETF uh, and sort of a new... He talked about the the Amazon uh, resilient businesses. It's sort of interesting today with Amazon. I want to pr- I want to follow up on some of those businesses that are resilient to Amazon in retail. Um, but I want to talk about how you thought. We, so we're working on licensing, and we license an index for you, from you for this re- global real estate basket. And uh, the the idea is a sort of modern economy index is to think about real estate in this new world. And and so let's maybe define where where you think about. Building this index and thinking about real estate globally today, give give your high level view of of maybe why real estate today, uh, and then how you thought about building different exposures.
1: Yeah, you're right. So you know, it, it you know, we're we're here back together live and in person, and and the really the genesis, I suppose, of our partnership did begin with the with that with that dinner during COVID, and it's been a phenomenal sort of couple of years for for everyone I know. Um, Look, I, I, the 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 uh, the index that we have created is based on our our research and ability at Center Square to identify those companies that are benefiting and growing from the changing demand patterns that are related to the new economy, uh, and that supports the the Wisdom Tree uh, index, which is ticker W T R E. Um, the uh, and 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 the concept here is very very simple. Um, the The last ten to twenty years have seen tremendous changes in demand patterns, driven by technology, demographics, and preferences, and all of those changes were accelerated and solidified permanently by COVID. Um, as a and, and real estate derives its value from its use, okay? People look at a real estate asset and they think, what can I do there? What can I do in that? What can I do with that to, uh, you, know, to, to uh, you know, work, work or play or, or, uh, or shop, right? And as a consequence of these changing demand patterns, the way that we utilize real estate has changed the way that we value real estate has changed, and there's winners and losers. Okay, the most obvious example of a loser is the mall. We have gone, we, we've gone from a thousand malls in this country to you know maybe 500, uh, and that will continue to rationalise itself. The new area, and that's why is that? That's because of technology. Okay, we can shop from anywhere. We can shop from our phones. You don't have to travel 30 minutes to the mall. Um, interestingly, what's happened through COVID is that you've compressed. 10 years of of trial and 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 trust and technology into two years as it relates to the whole working remote. Can yeah. we work from anywhere now? Now, I could make an argument. I could never step into a retail store again. Uh, I don't think if I could make that same argument as it relates to, to, to working because so much of human communication is nonverbal, right? And so we've all been on those Zoom calls and... You, you get on your Zoom call at 8am, you finish at 6 and you feel exhausted, it's because you're trying to convey the same amount of information in two dimensions. when Communication is really a three-dimensional sport. That being said, the obsolescence risk from technology has now shifted to the office sector. So I'm talking about things we don't invest in, in this index <laughs> right now. Because what, what are the winners? What are the winners? Well, we need, we need physical infrastructure to support the new way that we work, live and play, all right? So Amazon distribution warehouses, in, that's industrial warehouse distribution, working from home, that doesn't happen by itself. It happens through data centers and cell yep. towers. Um, you know, one of the other big uh, things that's come through uh, COVID is, you know, life sciences. Um, so those kinds of asset classes, which really are the physical infrastructure that underpin the new economy that is what we 're focused on, and big big believers on uh, in in our partnership with Wisdom Tree, but more generally thematically across our uh, across our investment strategies you know both pi- private public and, and debt. It's interesting. I mean there we talk about being back here
0: in studio together and we'll see if, if our listeners think this was a better episode than my <laughs> episodes on on Zoom and Teams. Um and so that but I, you can tell there there's a reason why we wanted to come back in person. There is something different about being here. Uh Wisdom Tree did go full remote, so it's interesting. Like we're giving people the option we actually haven't had an office since covid um in two weeks we're opening an office now it's interesting in uh in sort of a much smaller footprint Mm -hmm. infusing uh not a we work but like an industrious Mm -hmm. sort of multi-tenant space uh and and the purpose really is to just socialize in the in my view like i'm i'm not going to commute daily just to do to be on teams calls all day i will go to get together with my groups and have lunch and dinners and you know i think it's a different uh, different use case yep. uh, um but it, when, when let's talk about the trend in real estate strategies generally cuz you know with that decline of retail well the mall is is one of the ways and then and, and the rise of these towers you you are seeing major even the major indexes start to add more to those towers and logistics maybe we sort of can differentiate or as you see the opportunities in in some of those we could talk about how they've grown in traditional indexing
1: yeah it's it's really interesting um you know, these alternative asset classes, right? And they they're called alternative, but I, I think that's a that's an obsolete term because you know, what was what was more alternative to your firm uh or they call it non core or alternative. Like what the data center was the core as part of your office uh you know, your office environment during COVID, right? Versus yeah. the office itself. So this whole idea of core and non core goes back decades to an arbitrary decision by a group of people to call some real estate core and some non-core. And it really came down to the lease credit. So for a long, the longest time, apartments were not considered a core asset class because your underlying credit was a a person and it wasn't a JP Morgan, right, or a Macy's, right? And so that's that was the beginning of this, you know, arbitrary delineation between core and non-core. And it's interesting because it means today, if you look at the core open-ended funds out there- Which a lot of institutions and pension funds invest in, they're about 50% retail and office, and they've been very slow to adapt a lot of these new sectors. The REIT market, because it's part of the equity market ecosystem with competitive economic Mm -hmm. pressures, doesn't really have the luxury of arbitrary definitions, you know, because it's profit seeking. And so if you look at the REIT market today, it's actually pretty advanced in its um, adoption of a lot of these, you know, quote unquote non core sectors. In, In fact, more than half of the REIT market is in what's traditionally called alternatives. So life science, uh, uh, cold storage, single-family residential, uh, rental residential is a big, big and growing sector. Uh, you know, Others we talked about data centers, cell towers, yep. et cetera. Yeah, I, I see cell towers have
0: gone from 6% a decade ago to like 16% in the in the FTSE uh all equity REITs. Let's talk about for a second, the residential, because that's the, for people, you know, personally, people are looking at what's happening in, in homes and and housing prices with the fed narrative of rising inflation, rising interest rates. Do you see that impacting real estate? How do you see that impacting the general business? Uh, And, and, and are you going to see a slowdown? It's been so hot for the last few years. Is, is this rising rates going to be pressure for, for that market?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it, Literally is almost like a daily conversation at Center Square. We had an yeah. investment committee yesterday uh on a deal in, in in Las Vegas where we're you know significantly upgrading what I would call workforce housing. And a lot of the the lot of the questions were, well, can we continue to achieve this kind of rent growth? Even though we're cutting you know, our rent growth is below where a lot of the forecasters are. Can the market take it? Yeah. And also, you know, how do we feel about cap rates? Because you know, going in cap rates are three and a quarter percent for this, you know, this kind of deal. Now, we'll, we will grow that cap rate through, you know, investing in the asset and increasing rents to closer to a four, four and a half percent over the next few years. But at the moment, you know, year one, you've got negative leverage, right? Your debt costs are higher year one going in than, than the cap rate. And that's always for a real estate uh, investor, you know, should give you a, a A a moment of pause, right? So so define cap rate for people so they understand what you're talking about. Yeah, no problem. So um, cap rate is simply uh, the the yield on the real estate asset. It's net operating income divided by value, right? So um, it's it's, it's how we think of, you know, we think about PEs for stocks. We think about it on the inverse, if you will. We think about yields for real estate. Because often we're comparing the yield on the asset versus the debt cost. And what you like to see typically is that, the yield on the asset is greater than the debt costs, And so- um, uh, You get fixed debt and maybe rising and, incomes, and that's why and real estate's an inflation hedge. Exactly. And- but the coming back to your question, I think there's no doubt that over the next few months, you are going to see- I think we've seen the low for cap rates. And, and what I mean is that I said differently, I guess, in equity term, terminology. We've seen the high of PEs for real estate. There's no way that- cap rates can compress, or said differently, multiples can continue to rise as the Fed's increasing interest rates. That being said, the big difference that we have this cycle we haven't seen in decades is the fact that inflation is likely to remain persistently high. Larry Summers put out a piece that I thought was very good. It showed that due to the way that the Fed measures inflation, and inflation's about, sorry, uh, shelter's about 40% of CPI, that we won't see, because it's a very lagged indicator and, and, and the methodology is very lagged, that component of, of CPI is going to continue to be persistently high until the end of the year. So I think that inflation is going to be sticky. It's going to uh, continue to come through in the numbers. And one of the best ways to actually capture that is through residential rent, the residential rental market. In addition, typically what you would have seen at this point in the cycle with things being as strong as they are fundamentally is a lot more supply. And you're not getting a lot more supply because of supply chain issues. People literally – I had a, a discussion with a developer the other day. He can't finish the houses he's creating because he can't get the, uh, the ducting. Hmm. To connect the air conditioning, <laughs> and he's got to wait three months for that. people can't get garage doors. i mean there's the the, the stories you hear due to supply chain issues uh, you know are, are quite remarkable but and then on the other hand, a lot of the uh, you know municipalities are basically closing their their doors to new applications because they're overwhelmed. With uh, development applications, and so and and they can't hire people as well. To, so you have this very muted supply response, which is abnormal. It's due to you know what we're all living through. and but it does mean that rents can stay strong even if the economy slows down. So it's not a clear picture, but I would agree with you that the very strong returns we've seen in real estate, are, are, you know, we're talking about, you know, f- 15% returns, uh, you know, on an annualized basis the last couple of years for some of these, or more for some of these real estate sectors has to decelerate some, but there's still a lot of tailwinds that are going to push real estate forward if you're in the right kind of real estate. And if
0: you're buying a home, maybe, maybe you have a little time to, uh, a little pressure. We have Scott Crow with us for the hour. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. We're working together on a new ETF, Wtre, that is tied to this new economy type index that Scott's team put together. Uh, Scott, let, let's talk a little bit more about today's earnings. We have Amazon on earnings today. We, we, the professor kicked us off saying we're down double digits in Amazon, um, and this has been one of the things that's been killing those retail stocks. You talked about the just changing patterns, how, how do you see that playing out throughout your modern economy real estate index? How's that what, what's, what's the impact of Amazon on this real estate sector?
1: Well, you know Amazon has had a huge effect across the economy. Uh, and I think what we're seeing today is just a slowdown from or a, you know, a bit of a reset from you know, levels of growth that were unsustainable. I mean I, I, I view the economy in general as going through a transition. Right, and we're transitioning to opening back up. It doesn't mean we're going back to 2019. Okay, the future is sort of being written now in terms of how we how we live, work, and play. And Amazon's um, you know market share and, and penetration into retail sales is you know is, is going to you know is, isn't going to take too many steps backwards. Right, it's going to continue. Um, you know, that being said, the retail that does exist today. It's been through Amazon. It's been through COVID. Uh, it's it's probably going to survive. It's probably in good shape. If you have a retail asset today that's doing well and it's been through both of those litmus tests, I would say the long term prospects for that asset are pretty good. Um, and you know, as I mentioned before, we're not shy of investing in the right kind of retail. We have a, a a strategy that's focused on retail, but that retail that houses services where where consumption continues to grow. Because if you think about it. It's hard to get your haircut on Amazon at least yet, right? And um, whereas Amazon's been very good at basically penetrating uh, you know the 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 goods market and hence you know killing the department store, which was the anchor tenant of the mall. Um, more even if you take a, even a step further, you know Amazon's really a service, right? It's a service that allows you to buy things easily, return things easily, uh, has great customer service, very active, really, really good technology, and so part of what we're seeing in general is real estate as a service. You can think about the way that we may be going back to the office. You were talking about, you know, your own firm. Yes. Um, you may real estate traditionally was a good with four walls that I leased to you, and then I collected the rent, and that was it. But increasingly, we're going to be utilizing the services of co-working firms who help curate and organize an environment that helps us work how we want to work. Um, You can look at the build to rent, okay, single family build to rent. We're very big in and big believers in this concept of going out there and creating 100, 200 homes or townhomes that are specifically designed to be rented, not sold. So that you can... And you know they're highly amenitized they have maintenance people that are on site or very you know one phone call away and instead of thinking of housing as well it's a it's something that i buy and i get a mortgage and then i you know have to move you you can actually just think about i'm going to have the service of a house i'm going to have real estate as a service for 3 4 years uh and then i then i might do something else right so this is part of the transition of the economy but Back to your question on Amazon, why is that? And why is that? Why is the action today important to what we're doing with uh, the Wisdom Tree Index? Is because if you look at today's market action, Amazon, Amazon's down ten percent plus. All right, the S and P's down two percent, the Wisdom Tree Index down one and a half. But wait a second, wasn't the Wisdom Tree Index? Isn't isn't that related to technology and all the things that Amazon's driving? Yes, it is, but. The analogy would be, you know, in some ways we're selling the picks at the gold rush. It doesn't matter if this mine's working or that mine's working. I mean, take Netflix, for example. Netflix had horrible earnings because it was a few weeks ago because it had more supply, it had more more competition from more streaming services. That doesn't mean that there's less... Need for the data center. It just means that that demand is shifting around
0: more, more yeah, demand,
1: more demand. And so, what you're getting, what, what you're get, what why we really like these asset class, the, the the physical infrastructure that underpins the new economy, is that it's it it is the it, it's the infrastructures, the infrastructure play on the new economy. Uh, and so there is there is this there's more uh, inelasticity of demand for those assets, and and they will behave more resiliently as things transition and move around, and people go from one service to the other.
0: Uh, uh, there's a lot of things to drill into what you just said, so let me take the first one of the Amazon, the sort are of changing retail. They've if they survived COVID, they're resilient. Is is there now becoming like a growth in value within real estate and are the multiples of this retail sector, would you say, becoming cheaper, more attractive because of the Amazon effect?
1: I think <clears throat> retail is – we're getting a lot more interest in our retail strategy. And that's because the cap rates – we talked about cap rates. Yeah. The yield on these assets is closer to 7%, 6 to 7%. And that's very difficult to achieve in this market. Um, the the popular sectors, industrial warehouse distribution, uh, multifamily apartments, I mean, they're closer to three to four. So people are now looking at the retail sector and saying, huh, I get a 300 basis point spread on a yield basis to invest in retail. I, uh, and <clears throat> looking at the assets today, the ones that are still around, I mean, the retail side has rationalized. Dramatically, it was already, you know, a slow moving train wreck coming into COVID because of Amazon yeah. and changing yeah. in preferences. And then COVID just completely accelerated that. Um, the institutional capital has been a little bit slow to come back into the market because a lot of them had been dealing with their, their they were dealing with a lot of the problems on retail. So, yeah, retail, yeah. they just weren't doing any more of. But I, I think retail right now, you know generally speaking is is probably an area of value within real estate because the businesses that the that are there have survived you know armageddon they survived amazon the yields are high and particularly those focused on services i think the real issue is now the real issue of obsolescence and need for ration, rationalization of supply and all the question marks is now migrated firmly into the office sector Mm.
0: It was funny I, on on Twitter somebody was recently asking me about the retail sector so that, that was going to be motivating me to ask more about that so that that's great when you when you see Amazon or e-commerce when you say e-commerce is now one of the charts I, I saw from your team is is above twenty percent maybe it's maybe mid twenties how do you see that percentage over time can't what percentage of e-commerce can go to e-commerce.
1: We 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 made up a phrase for that many years ago. It's it's peak you know peak e commerce saturation, right? Like what yep. what 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 is that number? And we asked actually, <laughs> the strategy that we we are in partnership now began with a white paper that we we published in 2016. And this was one of the questions we asked, and kind of laid the groundwork for our thinking uh, at Center Square about how to invest around a lot of these thematics. And that was one of the questions we asked ourselves. Look and. A way to answer that is to look at where e-commerce penetration has peaked out, and it's in things like electronics and books. And the answer there is like seventy, eighty percent, right? Mm. So we got a long way to go. We could now. A lot of it has to do with the you know homo- homogeneity of the asset of of the good has to do with the cost of the good, the ease of return. There's a number of factors that we identify that basically will drive the amount of e-commerce penetration. <laughs> And that's one of the big secrets. the The big secret of e commerce penetration has been returns. I mean, yes, the technology's improved. You can see the you know the asset, or sorry, or the, or the good much better on online now. You can twist it around and see a model. You Have an you idea, you need in. it.
0: Boom, it's delivered.
1: Yeah, and but but the thing is, you can return it super easy. You can buy. Three pairs of shoes. Choose one and send it back. And that really, I think, has been the catalyst for um, uh, for uh, you know Amazon and others to start penetrating other areas that are more fashion orientated. Right. Hmm. So I think it's going to continue to grow. The technology in terms of us being able to 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 simulate a physical uh, experience in terms of looking at the asset is only going to improve. The metaverse you're yeah we're gonna, gonna have just put the augmented goggles in reality you'll be in the store you'll, you'll be, be able to feel you will feel feel touch and smell smell it eventually right you know so that's only going to improve so I, I I'm a big believer that uh, you're gonna see e-commerce penetration for goods continue to I- increase I mean it, it even exists for cars now for some extent I mean who would have thought right there's a lot lot there. I want to come to
0: your point on the build to rent. You've seen some of these stories on institutional investors, you know, like yourselves, but BlackRock being buying single-family homes. Talk about the distinction between the build to rent versus what a BlackRock model might be trying to buy these homes.
1: Yeah. So look, the bottom line is we we're underhoused in the United States. It goes back to the GFC, particularly for interest in global financial crisis uh, for your younger viewers uh, who didn't have to live through that. But uh You know, the global financial crisis uh, led to banks becoming, you know, very, very risk averse as it relates to how they make loans. So, if you look at the numbers, about fifty percent of all housing pre-financial crisis were entry level, and today that number is ten percent because you can't get a loan unless your FICO scores seven hundred plus. Right? So there's been this capital rationing. Even though capital has been cheap, it's been rationed to those with a lot of money. And there's been this underinvesting in housing, particularly entry level housing. Now that's happening at a time when you've got this huge demographic shift of millennials aging up, uh, and you know now now they've all got you know a, a, a one child and a and a dog, right? And Particularly through COVID, the amount of you know sort of that that uh, dynamic accelerated and we and 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 the other thing that's happening is these migratory pa- changes that were happening pre-covid anyway people were, were leaving higher cost and colder areas like you know the northeast Where we are. <laughs> yeah we we are and and and, high, and and moving to places with better weather lower tax and you know cheaper cost of living now that only accelerated through covid because look at the margin some firms are like hey you can work anywhere you want and you don't need a lot of people to move to have a big impact on some of those sunbelt markets So the bottom line, Jeremy, is we have a shortage of housing in this country. Where are you building? So we're building in places like Phoenix. We're building in places like San Antonio, Austin, Dallas, Houston, Charlotte, Raleigh. I've got people moving to all those places. I have somebody moved to Raleigh. One of my guys coming back from Europe,
0: moving to Charlotte. One of my guys is moving to Colorado. He's leaving yep. the Northeast. We've We're looking got... at that
1: market too. Yeah. It's, a, it's interesting. Yeah. and, and But the, the, the thing is, the, the way that we have a – the United States housing market is probably the world's biggest asset class. It grows every year at the same, uh, at the same rate as, as the entire GDP of Canada. Just to give you some context, there it's like it grows at two trillion dollars a year or some some big big number, but it's only one two percent owned by institutions. It's yeah. still a very it's it hasn't been institutionalized. So there, but there is this issue of you know we have this problem of underhousing, and then you have the big institutions. You mentioned BlackRock. There's you know others out there too that are now stepping into the market and buying up homes, and the perception is well they're kicking out. Mr. and Mrs. Jones, and they're racking up the rent. And that that is problematic, right? I I can understand why that creates tension between the institution and communities and consumers. That's not what we're doing. What we're focused on is solving the problem, and the problem is a lack of housing. And it's also uh, implemented by building more housing. And
0: centralized resources for renting might lower the costs of uh, the single person trying to
1: rent a home. It is so much more efficient. It's not just that, Jeremy. It's insurance. Okay the the cost of the cost of me as an individual insuring something versus an institution insuring two hundred homes. So there's all these efficiency scales. Yeah. Financing. Um, you can have amenity packages like you would have at a you know a high end uh, apartment complex with you know swimming pool club area. In fact, the single family rental assets that we build are higher quality than a single family home because we got to own them for 10 years. Whereas a home builder, you know, he sells or he or she sells it to and they're done. Right, that's interesting. So there's, a, there's I view build to rent s- single family rental as w- one of the most important technologies to help solve one of the biggest problems in the US which is underhousing. And I use the word technology because technology just means a technique of doing something. And this is the technique of housing people in today's economies with today's needs, where real estate is also, again, viewed somewhat and can be viewed and is evolving to being a service as opposed to a good. We've talked a lot about the U.S.
0: real estate market in some ways. Uh, How do you see um, the global market versus the U.S. market? How are valuations? Are there any trends in the types of real estate you would
1: look to own outside the U.S. versus inside the U.S.? Yeah, it's a great question. You, you can't you can't talk about uh, the international markets without still without talking about COVID. Um, <clears throat> you know, where I'm from in Australia, they, they recently gave up on the zero COVID policy, and and I, I, I sort of you know, joke a little bit that you know, COVID was glad to hear that because it didn't pay attention to it in the first place. Um, you know, these ideas of having zero COVID and look, America and China a lot, is still grabbing and onto sti- exactly, and it, it doesn't work. I mean, and look, America made a lot of mistakes. It was just, just disorganized between this state and that state. And, and and But eventually we got through it, right? And we got the vaccines and we're pretty much done and we're pretty much through it. COVID is still going on in Asia. COVID is still a thing in Japan. It's still a thing in Hong Kong. Hong Kong's basically closed down. China, parts of China are closed down. You know, Australia's just opening up. So... I think one of the things that makes the US a, you know, just, you know, specifically now, but just more in generally, is the ability to be flexible and, and get through things makes it an attractive investment market. Now, Europe, uh, you know, Europe's muddled through COVID, um, you know, but the big problem obviously right now is geopolitical it's the and then it's the follow on it then mean, there's some geopolitical risk premium that's increasing obviously from the tragedy that's happening in ukraine but the real life impact is on the energy side so that is means that europe is you know the, the the big increase in the in the cost of energy there means that europe is much more likely to be moving into recession and if you look at say just the the retail the shopping center stocks in europe on the REIT side that's what they're indicating and so I think it means that the marginal dollar today is looking to the U.S. as a, an economy that's on better footing, recovering from COVID better, and and you know has uh, has less geopolitical risk than a market like Europe, which is the second largest destination of institutional capital as it relates to real estate.
0: Now, in the traditional tech sector, like the Amazons, Facebooks of the world, they. The, the the story is the US is the only place where you have real big tech companies. In, in real estate oriented new economy sectors, are there some of these logistic plays, tower plays? How do you see the opportunities across Asia, Europe for for the real estate segment of the new economy?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, the, the, the way that we live, work and play is not exactly the same everywhere, but it, you know, it rhymes very closely. So logistics, e-commerce, it's ubiquitous. In fact, um, the UK has higher internet pre- penetration than the United States um, a lot of that has people think it has to do with den- density of of uh, of that country um, places like France and Germany are further behind you know they'd be in the teens versus that 20 percent the 25 percent you mentioned in the US Europe's uh, UK' is closer to 30 just because they are a traditionally you know adopted technology at a slower pace a slower pace and live their lives a little bit differently than us. Um, uh, you know, Japan, similarly in parts of Asia, is in that teens, but it's all trending in the same direction, right? It all, it all is trending towards using technology to, to shop more because it's, it's a better mousetrap. It's a better way of getting it done. And, uh, but, you know, and the need to build out that distribution supply chain through industrial warehouse distribution is you know, as, as needed there, as in the U S in many, in many ways, probably behind, uh, where we are, but, you know, needs to catch up, you know, date use of use of data, use of phones. Uh, these are, these are all things that are happening to the, to the human, you know, to the humankind, no matter where you're located. Um, and if anything, I would say that the infrastructure support for how we live, work and play today is, is, is the thing holding back, uh, further growth in that uh in in other markets and, and said differently we need to catch up the infrastructure as relates to distribution supply chains or um you know data centers or cell towers in uh, other parts of the world outside of the u s as we think about we talked about cap rates we talked about
0: p ratios things like that when you build an index and you guys are alpha seeking at a core but also now build an index you you built in some valuation and quality numbers to sort of think about trying to get smarter selection even in building an index um what we call kind of modern alpha is 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 the way to think about it what well, tell us about your what you thought were the key metrics that as you try to build a smarter selection process that were important
1: yeah so i mean The the, the stage one is like from a thematic standpoint, let's identify those asset classes that are benefiting from the changes in demand patterns and preferences and technology that we've been discussing for 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 this segment. And once you identify those asset classes, you're putting yourself in a really good position to succeed over the medium to long term because at the end of the day, the value of those assets is going to be driven by – the fact that demand is going to continue to want to be there and pay higher and higher rents and and utilize those assets to, you know, to to support the way we live, work, and play. So that's stage one. That at the same time, you know, as you've seen, like Amazon's a great company, but it's still down ten percent today. Maybe it got too expensive, right? So you you want to avoid in stage two. What we do is avoid overpaying for things. So we will put on a a uh, valuation screen, typically looking at cash flow multiples. Um, you know, to ba- to make sure we're, we're we're assembling a portfolio that you know isn't overpriced, right? That at least is it, it, at least fairly valued relative to those underlying thematics. And as part of that too, we have an internal quality score that we've been running uh, at Center Square for many many years. And that really makes sure that the, the, the people behind the business are competent and aligned uh, and are going to you know, do good things with your capital because you could have the best idea in the world and the wrong person running the business and you, you're not going to end up with the best outcome. Uh, and so that's really screening to make sure that we have the highest quality uh, intellectual property attached to the, the physical property as well. And you run it through that screen and, and, and that's the portfolio that, uh, that we put together.
0: There's a lot of interesting tilts in this logistics space, uh, about 40% logistics. You look at what's non-tech... oriented REITs in a global benchmark looks around 60% in a global benchmark, around half of a U.S. benchmarks with non-tech. So very interesting, different look at real estate that we're getting with this new Center Square Index. I appreciate you coming to the studio. We didn't get to talk about buying land in the metaverse, but I know uh, maybe on a, on a future program we can talk about the metaverse and is that a place to buy some land?
1: That's going to be a fascinating discussion. I look forward to it. Um, yeah, it's been, been very
0: interesting. Where can people learn more about Center Square if they're want to get some information on you on your team you
1: can look us up on the web's website you know centersquare.com uh, we have an insights page there uh, we are not shy about you know writing down the things we think and and putting them on there in our on our insights page and uh, you know, we got, you know, lots of lots of people including me getting on, on on TV and other formats to to give our view and we, we we house those clips there too if anyone has interest
0: very impressive for when I saw you speaking on on the Fox program talk about what's happening across the markets as the CIO of a real estate firm, you have a lot of insights into what's happening in the real economy. So thank you again for sharing those with us on Behind the Markets. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Chris, thanks for being on the board. I hope Patty, our producer, is doing well today. Uh, thank you for to us, can listen to our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz.